Welcome to the Perfect Pitch podcast series, a unique insight behind the scenes of classical music industry and the inspiring people and stories of their lives. I'm Kat Alder and I hope you enjoy. In this episode, I speak to Justin Cantor, co-founder of Le Poisson Rouge, in short LPR, in the West Village of New York City. They're currently celebrating their 10-year anniversary in an impressive amalgamation of for-profit venue and classical music, or broadly speaking, music fanatics. And with that, are pretty much the last independent venue standing in Manhattan. Please don't forget to share, rate and review The Perfect Pitch. And now let's get on to Justin. Enjoy! The first question I've got is, could you describe yourself if you had a party pitch or when you go to an event and people ask you, oh, so what do you do? Uh, what do you say normally? Um, I usually introduce myself as a co-founder of Le Poisson Rouge, um, which is a music venue in Greenwich Village. It identifies itself with its eclectic programming and uh, in- including classical music. And, uh, you know, we, we've been around for about 10 years now. I also p- play cello. I went to school for classical music um, at Manhattan School of Music. I, went, I got a, um, a degree in cello performance and I try to keep that up. Also have some other entrepreneurial endeavors as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. And I think what's probably quite interesting, especially because you're celebrating your 10th anniversary this year, or you're doing a season around that, aren't you? Um, to maybe explain where Passe Rouge came from, how did it start, what are kind of the initial steps of it? Yeah, it started really from this desire to connect as a classical musician with with um, my peers, and you know, this was something that um, the idea for me came about at um, while I was at Manhattan School of Music with my business partner, really complaining about how we love the music that we're participating in, but the audience isn't there for us. There wasn't an audience besides other musicians that were around our age that really we connected with. Um, and so, and the idea was that classical music isn't an art form that needs to be kind of treated differently than other types of music that people listen to and enjoy. And we felt that having, um, a home for for all different types of music that would just include classical music would help break down that barrier. And, mm. um, and then we actually did it, <laughs> which was something like, um, you know, we had the business plan and then all of a sudden this thing becomes real. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and then through the School of Hard Knocks and we're one of the last remaining independent music venues in New York City. and. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and that's not just classical music, but that has to do with all, you know, all all the music venues out there, um, the mm. indie rock world, and and what have you. Um, a venue, I should say, of our our capacity is there in Manhattan. Um, there just aren't very many of them that are that are independently run. I think I saw somewhere that you said, "Wouldn't it be cool if I could smoke a cigarette in Carnegie Hall?" And was that uh, when I saw one of your talks? Um, is, was that the initial concept to a certain degree, like making it as accessible or relaxed or whatever you understand from that? Yeah, I mean, at the time, it was actually allowed to smoke in bars when we were when we were considering the, uh, this. Um, but in that in that that the, the idea sort of we we spent a lot of time, um, you know, I guess during smoke breaks at at school and the orchestra, like just you know becoming friends and 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 realizing that we both you know me and my business partner both have this desire to connect 
um, for different reasons, but we, we had this, this desire to sort of find that connection between the audience and, and the performer. Um, and, and we complained about going to Carnegie Hall and, and feeling like, you know, even if it's a, an amazing um, event or a concert, that the vibe is just, just not conducive to really being able to relax and get into the music. And how did you find the space um, when you started off? Or Also, I can imagine that going from being a cellist and a musician to being actually a venue owner or entrepreneur in that sense, it's quite a big jump. How did you, like those first steps of, of finding a space and, and running a venue, how did you find that? What were the first steps? Do you remember? Like probably a real step we took was we made this business plan and we started looking for investors. Um, mm. The business plan took about maybe six to eight months to put together and it wasn't just putting the actual plan together. It doesn't take that long, but um, it was just the refining of the concept. And, you know, it was for both me and my business partner, get, literally getting on the same page. Cause when, you know, at first the idea is different, you know, what we think in our, our heads is the same. When you start putting it on paper, you realize that there's a lot of sort of differences in terms of what we thought this place would be. But at mm-hmm. the same time, there's a lot of aspects of it that were, that lined up for both of us that we, we really wanted to make sure was integral to the business. Um, and we even sort of imagined how we'd want it to feel and um, the experience of entering the, the venue. And um, we have a fish tank that's hanging off of our ceiling that um, looks like it's falling off of uh, um, chains, like it's falling yeah. off of its end. You know, that was something that was early on, something that we wanted to do. Um, and that, that actually happened. That was kind of like maybe a crazy idea that actually made it into the final, um, you know. And yeah, we once we had the business plan, it was for about maybe two years, three years, looking for the right location also. Um, and the room specs had, had it's actually very hard to find um, a room that will work for, you know, at our scale, like 700 capacity standing. Um, that has the right proportions um, and that don't have columns or that are square, you know, that's more of a square space. It's not like a rectangular looking space. And um, in Manhattan, it's really hard to find. Um, so, you know, we were looking for a while and, and there weren't that many options. Um, and then this place that came available that's, that was the Village Gate was um, that we have now um, had a very historic run, I guess. Uh, it was... Um, one of the, the 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 most influential venues during the you know the folk rock resurgence in the in West Village during a lot of what was happening with jazz and um, salsa music in the in the city um, and it would actually also present some classical music as well. Um, Edgar Varese lived around the corner and. Um, I believe there were some New York premieres of his work there. So it was kind of, a, in a lot of ways, um, Le Poisson Rouge was like carrying the torch for, the, for this place, the Village Gate. Um, but in between the Village Gate and Le Poisson Rouge, there was this really fun nightclub that I had never gone. I was just just a little too young or not aware of what was happening um, called Life. And Life was also a very influential in, in, in the industry and a lot of the People, the promoters that work there became really um, well-known names in the hospitality industry. 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to name any now because I'm probably going to name the wrong people. I just, I'm not good with that. But um, I, if, if you sort of go into the history of this club life, you'll, you'll see that it was, it was a pretty, it was also a very sort of um, culturally relevant and wild place. Um, but because of its wildness, um, it was shut down pretty quickly by the community um, for noise and just sort of lack of neighborhood, um, lack, they're just bad neighbors. <laughs> and, and after it was shut down, it was very, it was next to impossible for any other music venue or club to open up there because a liquor license was going to be extremely hard to, to get because in order to get the liquor license, you need the community approval and they just had such a bad taste in their mouth from this last club, we gave it a shot. It was probably, in retrospect, a really cavalier way to um, go about it. You have to sort of sign the lease and agree to making the payments and everything and a down payment. And then you have to apply for the liquor license. Um, and you know, oh. we, were, we were being told we had like a one in 10 chance of getting this license. So we're like, okay, we got a chance, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. You know. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and then we got it, we got the license and you know, we've, been good neighbors ever and have never had a we just you know had our renewal and there's no complaints or anything so yeah i think we're we're now uh, a good neighbor and the community is happy to have us so well you lasted quite a long time already so that's quite impressive (laughs) um and do you remember from that first season kind of the first couple of concerts you did any highlights or something you were particularly proud of I remember our first sort of like electronic music concert was with this up and coming at the time um, artist Flying Lotus. And oh, wow. <laughs> it was on a, I remember it being on a Sunday night and it was just, you know, I guess for my, maybe now it wouldn't have been something that would have stood out exactly, but it was just a type of electronic music that I was not, had not been exposed to. Um, and I, I saw the, I was able to sort of um, connect with, both the the feeling and the vibe of the music, but also able to you know really listen to the compositional aspect of it and and how complex and I guess heady it was. There's a lot to sort of take in just from an intellectual experience as well as there was from a physical experience. And so I thought it was really cool. And I started learning a little bit more about that kind of music at right at that point. Classical concert was also really cool because um, it was it was classical and indie rock at the same time. It was this group. It's still around that that uh, the Metropolis Ensemble um, that we, yeah. we still work with regularly. They did a um, of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring with uh, you know with electronics and that was a really cool um, concert. Also having Rite of Spring because we felt like that's such a a groundbreaking piece and we wanted to sort of tie ourselves with that sort of mentality 
And then there was uh, Simone Dinnerstein played the uh, Goldberg Variations. So that was like a major, oh, wow. like a major classical artist playing a room with yeah. everybody. And then, and then right after that, it was part of this the JVC Jazz Festival, which is no longer. But because of the history with the Village Gate, we were able to start working with you know the big wigs there at JVC Jazz Festival at the you know before we even opened. And we had this um, most deaf um, perform after his Carnegie oh. Hall, JVC, there was like his after party performance. And that happened right after Simone Dinnerstein. So to have Simone Dinnerstein and most deaf on the same stage in like maybe our first week, maybe it was within our first two weeks of being open was- Jesus, that's like, quite a mix. <laughs> yeah, it was, was really exciting. Um, yeah, that's kind yeah. of we, where we felt like, oh, you know, maybe this is going to be easy. We're going <laughs> to, nope, but, um, but at least, you know, it, it was great to see the concept working, you know, and, yeah. and yeah. people really getting into it. What do you think kind of over the 10 years has changed? So in terms of, so maybe it's interesting to know your day-to-day job, what you do there exactly. So if someone wants to understand kind of what your actual day-to-day job involves, has that changed a lot over the last 10 years or is that similar still? I guess in a way it's, it's it's similar, but its requirements are somewhat less. Um, when we first opened, the amount of time, well, there was also a learning curve that I had in terms of all of a sudden I'm managing a team of experts and what they do. Um, we had a you know a director of you know the the music director or the um, technical director, um, the booking directors, the musical directors, the general manager. I mean, these are all people that have a tremendous amount of experience that we've hired. And then, um, you know, and here's this kid who's 28 years old, you know, uh, yeah. like <laughs> pointing, you know, and of course I was kind of learning, but I wasn't, I wasn't able to do this with like a clear, like eight hours of sleep head. No, I was working pretty much around the clock. Um, it was very, it was, a. It, it's, always will be a, a struggle financially um the club mm-hmm. and what that means is i always felt that anything i could do to help cover whatever um jobs that you know would lower the cost of operating i would do so on top of sort of just overseeing everything i was um you know and almost really for the past 10 years have been doing a, a a majority of like uh the financials the bookkeeping whatever i can to keep the accounting cost as low as possible Um, which is a huge job in itself. It's probably, you know, 20, 30 hours, just that. Um, But when we opened up, um, it was, uh, you know, there were nights where I would be managing the shows, you know, just getting a feel for what it's like to be on the floor. Um, You know, their most night, I would say I would, I would probably leave the club around five to 6 a.m. and be back at 10 in the morning um, for about seven days a week for about three years. Um, so that's not sustainable. <laughs> um, and so, you that's know, I, you spies you for a while. <laughs> yeah. And you know, as a club, as a club has been running and, and a lot of it's about managing your team and finding the right people and knowing, you know, and mm-hmm. having all that sort of settled. So now 10 years in, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually, um, handing over the keys to the bookkeeping aspect of it. Um, and our team and, you know, it's just the functionality of, of, of all of our um, um, employees is just very high. And, and um, you know, there's just an autonomy that I'm able to give my employees that I, I really wasn't able to at first. And so I don't have to answer a million questions coming from a million different directions every single day. Um, everyone kind of knows what 
what the deal is and what the answer should be. And usually when they were, when they ask me a question on, on the, 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 you know, my answer is just, well, what do you think? <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, that sounds great. You know? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's really sort of, it's still, a, it's still a tremendous amount of work, but it's, it's like within, you know, 40 to 50 hours a week. And, and then the hours are still crazy. Um, and, you know, cause you want to go see events and you want to, you know, participate with, with, um, you know, connecting with the artist still. And then there's still a lot of daytime um, work that has to be done. You but know, to a degree, work. you're almost like a role model for maybe a lot of venues who get high amounts of subsidiaries because really you don't have any subsidiaries or support, financial support. So you have to make the, the numbers work and the figures work. And that actually is probably quite, quite a rare thing, at least for the classical music sector. Yeah, I mean, it's really stressful. Um, you know, I've, I've learned how to deal with situations where the club cash flow is not in a place where it, 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 it needed to be to pay all of its bills on time, you know, and, and knowing who to pay, making sure that like, for example, artists always got paid first and foremost, employees always got paid. Um, but knowing really how to deal with the vendors, um, you know, that we want to have strong relationships with and are unable to, to pay right away and being able to, um, you know, be open with them and, and, uh, realize that it's going, you know, that we will be able to make good on, on, on everything. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, over time building those relationships, um, but that's really scary and it's always yeah. really stressful. Yeah. And, it, you know, and as any company w- w- that grows is, you know, there's the cash flow sometimes doesn't, doesn't, um, doesn't match the, you know, the, um, the success of the business. So you can be doing really well, but the cash, um, there might be investments that have to go in that will cost a lot upfront. Um, you know, um, all of our, most of our expenses are hit at the beginning of the month. So sometimes that's tricky when we need money to come in throughout the, the month in order to pay for everything that just hit and happens at the very beginning. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. It's stressful. Um, I'd say it's the most stressful part of what I do is, is just making sure that ends meet. I don't know how not for profits work, but exactly. But, I don't think that they should have a different mentality. I feel if they have money that is they can acquire that's um, not coming from their operating budget, um, you know, I think it would be hard to do for me too because if you have this money there and you know you might be able to get more of it, then it's like, oh, I can just pay this. Oh, I can say I'd probably say yes yeah. to more things that I'm saying no to now, you know. But mm-hmm. to really feel like that money doesn't exist would probably be something that I would. I would try to channel what it's been like running LPR because you don't, um, there it's, it's, there are things, um, that seem like the club needs there, you know, items that, that, you know, maybe aren't really necessary. Maybe the customer experience while it could, you know, while we want to be like the absolute best, there are certain amenities that will put the club in the hole and, and not be worth it. Um, so, you know, and, and being tough with that, um, with those decisions is, is really important. How would you evaluate the live market right now in New York specifically or for you as a small venue? In New York city or just like New York in general? Cause New York city, it's well, drug. Well, uh, New York city probably in that sense, it's a very different experience than the, the state. Yeah. Um, I mean also, uh, when you like, you know, Manhattan versus Brooklyn, even like, um, and, and Queens, so uh, like in Manhattan, um, 
you know, the rents are making it very difficult for any of the math to make sense. And that's why you see all these big corporations kind of coming in. Um, and the places that are sustaining themselves have, have been around for a while, you know, probably the, the rent that if we were to try to come into the space today and, and get the, the rent, I don't know if, it, if we'd be able to get, and even the rent that we're paying is very, it's, it's, it's a challenge to be able to make that, um, not every single month. So I think from the financial side, there isn't a lot of room for music venues in um, Manhattan to, to thrive and succeed because it's just too expensive here. The cost of everything, the liability insurance, I mean, what we pay to performing rights organizations for a venue, are, I guess that's for all venues our size, but you know, that's a, that's a whole salary, basically. When you add up like what we're, and then the insurances are, are quite expensive and the rents are, are quite expensive. We have, uh, the artistry is fantastic. I mean, the, the, like, I feel that um, there's no, you know, even with whatever competition there is in terms of booking shows, there's just, there's plenty of great artists that are able to really command an audience, um, you know, for, for our size venue. And so, you know, that's great. And I, and I think artists are getting smarter about using technologies and building their brand. Are there so, some artists that are exciting you particularly at the moment or that you've got booked for the, for the season that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I mean, we have this, um, on, the, on the classical music side, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's for sale yet, but we have our, you know, Takakigawa, um, who is just a dear friend and has really been playing with at LPR for probably almost 10 years that we've been open. <laughs> and it's just so fantastic the way that he's able to build excitement around really challenging musical programs for solo piano, just to like mm -hmm. the complete works of Buez. Like, you know, that's not, that's not exactly a walk to the park in terms Easy of sell. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and he, he's just as amazing. Also something, uh, an artist that has been with, uh, performed with us at, in our early days is Michael Reisman who is a pianist that works, composer and, and producer that works very closely with, with Philip Glass. And um, he's going to be performing Philip Glass's um, Dracula, the score of Dracula on solo, for solo piano with the, the silent film in the, in the background. Um, so that, that's going to be a really cool show. Also for indie rock, this band Deerhoof, who has also been with playing LPR for for ages. A lot of a lot of the shows coming up, we 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 sort of just you know for our ten year anniversary, there was a lot of nostalgia that I think went into the programming, you know. Um, and Except so that. you know, Room Full of Teeth is a, you know an artist that we have. Um, then um, Deerhoof 
and uh you know which is a really cool they actually collaborate with a lot of new music um artists in, in new amsterdam i know they, they've worked with artists there of montreal is a really cool show and then oh mm-hmm. we have daniel lenoir um who produces and composes a lot of music um and famous for producing u2 albums i think he he was he was he did joshua tree and mm-hmm. he's a very unique sound. And once you sort of hear it, you'll hear it in a lot of these artists' music. And he he, he recently um, released an album in collaboration with um, Venetian Snares. Um, oh, wow. And they're oh. a, the pretty cool experimental rock band. Um, yeah. But the, it's going to be a really cool. I'm very much looking forward to that, that show. Yeah. mentioned when we picked up the phone that you also run another company and I also saw that you teach don't you at a university in yeah Brazil. so um how about those two things tell me about it it's not quite as sexy to talk about as, as the music venue but yeah it's it's a it's called venue pilot it's a it's a startup um application that's really designed to help venue venues with their back end um mm-hmm. data and the the really cool thing about it is I think I found a way to help um, talent buyers use their data from their venues in a way to help forecast ticket sales of artists that they might not that might have never played at their venue before, or even hey, artists that wow. have played at their venue and give them a better sense of what it's going to be based on different competition in the area, similar artists um, that have played maybe on certain genres work better on certain days. So it's it's going to give the talent buyer like a, a real overview of much more tools than they currently have available in terms of mm-hmm. determining this the the um the ability of of an artist to be able to sell tickets and um helping picking the right date for the artist that make the most sense um for sales so you know that's kind of where it's going right now it's it's a back end it's a it's a really cleanly designed back end system and um i also am trying to integrate a lot of different, it's got its own ticketing application, um, ticketing platform built into it, but it also integrates with other ticketing companies and applications. And the mm-hmm. idea is that um, a lot of different ticketing providers have services that are valuable in terms of marketing shows, um, but it's it's you're often forced to sign some sort of exclusivity contract with one of them. So my goal is to help break that mold and allow venues to um, work with multiple ticketing companies and have that integrate into one backend system so they don't have to worry about like um, dealing with it. You know, I sold 10 tickets here, I sold 15 tickets there, I sold 20 tickets there. How many tickets do I have left to sell? You know, what happens if there's a big surge on this? So it, it integrates all of that part of it so you don't have to worry about the, the sales. So that's kind of. And how, um, how far are you with it? Is it live already? Or it's live, where? yeah. I've, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's in beta. I have a few venues using it. Um, LPR mm-hmm. is using the back end and, you know, we, we're integrating Eventbrite with it um, right now. And uh, 
Yeah. Um, and pitch, you know, now I'm learning how to be a salesperson with a tech product. I'm going to actually, I have a, a 12, uh, I have a call in about seven minutes. Two <laughs> but, questions um, and then I'll let yeah. you run off about it. Um, one was, do you have anyone you kind of look up to or you think is somewhat of a role model in our sector you can think of or who maybe gives you valuable advice or you feel kind of is inspirational um, from an industry perspective, not necessarily, well, if there is a differentiation. <laughs> The entrepreneurs that are keeping it alive, like um, Steve Ben Susan from the Blue Note, it's pretty cool. You know, keeping how he keeps his brand independent. Um, the folks over at First Avenue in Minneapolis, um, you know, it's just a historic music venue yeah. that um, really sets the stage for what an independent music venue should be. And you know, the values are in the right place, and being able to sustain that for as many years as they as they have. And if someone wants to get into that sector or is kind of interested in the live music scene, how would you advise them to get into it? So if some student has this crazy dream of starting their own venue or their own concert series, what, what would be your tips? Smartest way is something that I wish we did. And I think it um, would be you start by promoting. You start by putting on concerts and trying to build audiences for that concert, be it for your own ensemble or for other groups. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you can start small. You can start with 20 people and work your way up and try to get it so you're, you're you know, consistently um, packing out bigger rooms. And then you start negotiating deals with other venues and building the brand. And you might find at that point that it, it's better move to do that instead of owning like a brick or like, you know, like yeah. starting a brick and mortar venue. So you say um, going into existing venues and essentially building your own series or your own name as a promoter first. Yeah. That's a good, good tip for someone to have. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Justin, for taking the time out of your busy day to speak to me. I hope you all enjoyed it and will give some feedback on it. You can reach Justin on all the usual social media channels as well as myself. Have a great week.